we've been working through the narrative of the raising of Lazarus, John chapter 11. And we began with a message that was more general, and it was entitled, Navigating Our Times, Trials, Touches, and Tombs. Because all of us, like this family at Bethany, all of us have our times of misunderstanding and our trials of misery, our touches of melancholy, and even our tombs of mourning. We then went on and took a closer look at the family, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Now, in that first message, we learned three truths that we're going to need to navigate these things. First of all, Jesus loves you more than you know. Never forget that. Never forget that. Then, what happens to you isn't always about you. That kind of... Slaps at our pride a little bit, doesn't it? But sometimes we go through things, and the primary objective is not something that we need. It's something that somebody else needs. And then the darker the problem, the brighter the solution. Sometimes God lets things get mighty bad. So it would be that much more evident that it's him that's doing the work. And that's what was the case with Lazarus. And then we, we looked at Martha. And each of these threes, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, uh, all of them exhibit a characteristic of victorious Christian living. Martha was that of faith. You don't think that way. We, we, we wrongly look at Mary and Martha and try to contrast them. No, they, were, they complemented each other. Martha exhibited faith. Eh, true, it could be an irritated faith. We've all been there. And sometimes it was an inaccurate faith. But thank God it was an informed faith that led it to be an incredible faith. Then we looked at Mary while Martha is characterized by faith, Mary is characterized by worship. And as you look at her worship, you see that her worship was attentive. Her worship was abasing. Her worship was authentic. And her worship was appropriate. It was biblical. Then last time, we looked at Lazarus. Martha speaks to us of faith. Mary speaks to us of worship. But Lazarus speaks to us of testimony. Of testimony. His testimony was one of security. His testimony was one of humility, and his testimony was one of identity. Each member of this family represents an ingredient of victorious Christian living. And we've seen this miracle from the perspective of Martha, of Mary. And one would think the most important perspective would be that of Lazarus. But no. Now we turn our attention to the most important name in this narrative. The name above all others. Because without him, all the faith, all the worship, all of the humility in the world means nothing. There's plenty of people that have faith in the wrong things. There's plenty of people that worship the wrong things. And there's plenty of people that have humility for all the wrong reasons. Oh, but when you add in the lovely Lord Jesus, you find that his is the only perspective that really matters. <laughs> we want to take a few minutes and read a bit between the lines, maybe, and glean some wonderful truths about the Master, the miracle worker, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. John chapter 11, verse number 1 by way of introduction to this. 
Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. I'd like to speak to you this morning on this subject. Three truths. It should say the life giver. He is the lawgiver. That should say the life giver. I'd love to tell you that was spell check. It wasn't. My internal spell check fell apart. Life giver. He's the lawgiver, but that's not what this story is about. The life giver. Okay? Three truths from the life giver. Father, I hope that my mistake wasn't too much of a distraction. Lord, I don't want anything to distract from the message that you have for us this morning. Would you forgive me for all the ways that I fail you? As best I know at this moment, I'm right with you. But Lord, if there's something that's displeasing to you, and I've just not even had the good sense to notice it, would you reveal it to me that I might make it right? I want to be a clean vessel. I want you to be able to use me today. I want the Lord Jesus to be lifted up and made much of today. So help us to that end. Speak to us in an unusual way. And may Christ be glorified in all of it. For it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. So you've got Lazarus. He and his sisters, Mary and Martha, friends of Jesus, had him into their home. They took care of him. They looked after him. They fixed his favorite meals. They made sure he had a place to sleep. And they didn't just entertain Jesus. They entertained anybody who was with him. The 12 disciples, his mother, some of the ladies that followed Jesus, Mary Magdalene and others, all of those were welcome. It stands to reason that Mary and Martha and Lazarus probably were a little more well-to-do than most because most people wouldn't have a house big enough to have all those people in it. So evidently they were doing okay. And they used that, that, uh, that gain for the Lord Jesus' glory. Lazarus gets sick. They send word to Jesus, and Jesus tarries his coming. And Lazarus has been dead for four days by the time Jesus gets there. The first to meet him is Martha. Her faith is a bit irritated at that point. It was also, it was also inaccurate. Lord, if you'd have been here, our brother wouldn't have died. We come, to, we come to understand that just because Jesus is here doesn't mean people don't die. But because Jesus is here, people live again. See, um, That's the key. Now, there will come a day that people won't die anymore, and that's going to be a wonderful day. But, uh, but she wasn't exactly accurate in her understanding there. She said, and Jesus said, your brother will rise again. She said, well, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Well, that's the most important question in the whole story. Because here, friend, if, if, you're, if you're trusting your good works or your righteousness or your religion to get you in heaven, that's not going to do it. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. You must put your faith and trust in him and him alone. Not in being a Baptist, not in getting in the water, not in, in shaking my hand or filling out a card. Has there been a time in your life realizing you were a sinner that you called upon Jesus and Christ alone to be your Savior by faith? That's what gets you into heaven, friend. Martha, of course, answered in the affirmative. And she confessed just as Peter did. I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God. Faith. Faith. 
Mary was much more worshipful. And Jesus met with her next. Then he goes to the tomb and he says, uh, he says, move the stone. Now, could Jesus have, could Jesus have magically done this? Magic is not the right word. Supernaturally done this without moving the stone? Sure he could have. Could he have moved the stone with his mind? Sure he could have. But God doesn't generally do things for us that he's empowered us to do ourselves. Oh, I just wish somebody would, I just wish God would speak to my lost loved one's heart. Well, he's empowered you to speak to him. See, I, I, just, I, just wish, I just wish God would just bring people into this church. No, he's empowered us to go invite them. God doesn't generally do things that he's empowered us to do. I just wish God would just rain money down. No, he's empowered you to go to work. Most of us. Martha protests. Her faith wavers just a hair. She forgets. Lord, he's been dead four days. That great King James word, he stinketh. He stinketh. And he did. And if you think that because Jesus was there when they opened that tomb that all of a sudden the air smelled like roses, you're wrong. Because when that tomb was opened, everybody there needed to know that Lazarus was dead. And everybody there did know that Lazarus was dead. And Jesus walked up to the face of that tomb and he took in all of that foul odor that he might do a miracle. Can I tell you, he went to the cross and took in our foul odor too. That he might do a miracle. He hollered out, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. Man. And so we look at it from Martha's perspective and from Mary's perspective. But what about, and from Lazarus' perspective, but what about Jesus' perspective? What do we have going on here in Jesus' mind and heart? Well, let me give you the first truth. Number one, the truth about the silence of the Savior. They called for him. He who thou lovest is sick. Jesus, please come. And he didn't. You ever prayed about something and God seemed to you to be silent? Where is he? Why doesn't he come running? Why doesn't he make himself known? Why doesn't he show himself? I'm dying here. This is terrible. Everything's falling apart. Why is God silent? Can I remind you his silence does not indicate indifference. Jesus' delay was not indicative that he didn't care. What does the Bible say? Remember, it says, he whom thou lovest is sick. And and John comes back and gives us a postscript. Now, Jesus loved. He whom thou lovest loves him like a brother. But John says, no, he loved him more than that agape. He loves him like God. If, If Jesus had the power to heal Lazarus, and he did, What do you think it did to his heart, knowing what was happening, knowing how badly his people were hurting, to sit there in silence? It didn't indicate indifference. Imagine how hard it was for him to sit idly while he knew Lazarus was dying and Mary and Martha were confused and hurting and mourning, and yet he just waited. Can I tell you one of the most difficult things for a parent, and I've learned this, is to sit silently and watch your child struggle or even fail that they might learn what is needed for a greater victory? 
Because really, our natural inclination is to make sure and that, that, that child has everything they need to succeed and let's, let's, oh, let's help them out. Oh, they need a little help here. But they'll never grow like that. Sometimes you got to let them fail. And sometimes you got to let them hurt. And sometimes you got to let them get scraped up. Because that's the only way they grow. And it's not easy. Then multiply that a thousandfold that Jesus sits in silence, not indifferent, but knowing that his people are hurting. His silence does not indicate indifference. I'll tell you what else. The silence of God does not indicate inaction either. Just because you can't hear him or see him doesn't mean he's not doing anything. It's so easy to think of God as dragging his feet when nothing seems to be happening because we don't want just we just don't want God to do what we want him to do. We want him to do it when we want him to do it. We want God to operate on our timetable. Be reminded, friend, God transcends time. Time time is of no issue to him. The truth is, just because we can't see anything happening or feel anything happening doesn't mean nothing is happening. I don't mean to sound like a stalker, but most parents will understand what I'm saying here. Periodically, periodically I'll go to the door of one of my children's bedroom and I'll watch them while they're sleeping. I take those opportunities to pray for them, to thank God for them, and frankly to see what they look like because that's the only time they sit still. (laughs) To study them to see what's changed. And, you know, Asher especially right now, I mean, I'm just now figuring out he's got blue eyes. But he just lays there still, mouth open. And it looks like nothing's going on. But in that little body, millions upon millions of things are happening. Synapses are firing and nerve endings and brain activity and the heart is pumping and the blood cells are moving and regenerating and all kinds of things are happening. I just can't see them. And sometimes God brings us to a place in our lives that it feels like God's asleep. It feels like he's inactive. And we just can't see that millions upon millions of things are happening in the good providence of God. He is, he is moving this here and shifting this over here and taking care of this here. In fact, the only thing that messes that up is when we get in the way. Psalm 121, I will lift up mine eyes into the hills from which cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. There is never a time, a moment, a modicum of history in which God has been inactive. He is constantly working on our behalves, even if we can't perceive it. See, the truth about the silence of the Savior, it does not indicate his indifference and it does not indicate his inaction. So what do I do, Andy? You keep praying. You keep trusting. 
you keep being faithful. The truth about the silence of the Savior. Then number two, the truth about the presence of pain. You know, pain is not always disciplinary. We tend to think when something painful comes into our lives that God may be teaching us something or correcting something, and that may be, and that's a valid question to ask. But it's not always. Sometimes it's about something beyond that. You remember in John chapter 9, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind, that was a common Jewish thinking back then. If somebody had an illness or had an infirmity, it's because somebody sinned. So who sinned? Him? His parents? Jesus answered, neither had this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Remember, it goes back to what we talked about before. What you're going through isn't always about you, but it is always about him. Pain is not always disciplinary. And you know what else? Pain is not meant to be detaching. Pain has a way of isolating us. Think about it. Many times people in grief, what do they do? They get off by themselves. People that are hurting, they, 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 don't wanna, they don't want people to see them like this. They don't want people to see them suffering, and so they get off by themselves. Could I submit to you that in most cases, that's the wrong idea? God never meant pain to detach us. He didn't mean pain to isolate us, because that's when the devil works very effectively, is when we're cut off, could I say it this way, from the herd. Remember, he's a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may desire. Pain has a way of isolating us, but never forget that even if you feel completely alone, you're not because Jesus enters into our sufferings with us. When he said, I'll never leave thee, nor forsake thee. When he said, lo, I'm with you all the way, even to the end of the world, that includes when you're in pain. That That includes when your pain is so bad, you're angry at God. Surely God steps away from me when I'm angry at him. Never means never. Always means always. So even when your faith is irritated, your pain does not isolate you from God and from his love. Seeing then that we have a great high priest which, that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What did Paul say? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, 
which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm hurting bad, Andy. You may be. But you're not hurting alone. And I got good news for you. The one who's with you is the healer and the giver of life. And he's all you need. He's all you need. You see, Jesus teaches us some truth, his perspective about the silence of the Savior, the presence of pain. But then there's also the truth about Jesus' evaluation of evil. Would you agree with me that Jesus loves every sinner? Would you agree with that? Yeah. For God so loved, how much? The world. No exclusions. That he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I don't know what you're going through today. And I don't know where you are spiritually or mentally or emotionally for the most part. I don't know that. And it could be there's somebody that's watching online. If you all will forgive me, I'm going to sit here for a second next to these potatoes. I don't, I don't know what you're going through. Watching online here in the room. But let's, let's take some possibilities. You're struggling with alcohol. In fact, you lost that struggle last night and you acted the fool. Jesus loves you. You got a drug problem. Started out innocent enough, but it got to harder stuff, and now your life's a mess. Jesus loves you. You're in a relationship that you know God's not in it. And, and further still, you know that what you're doing in that relationship is not pleasing to God either, and you just don't know how to get out of it. Jesus loves you. you got a foul mouth, and despite your best efforts, you just can't help but cuss a blue streak. Jesus loves you. You have a hard time telling the truth sometimes. Makes you a liar. Jesus loves you. Your attitude stinks. And sometimes you mistreat the people closest to you. Jesus loves you. Andy, what in the world are you drawing on? I've had elements of all of these. And through all of that, one thing remained true. Jesus always loved me. You're an adulterer? Yeah. By Jesus' standard, I sure am. Enslaving habits? You better believe it. I'm battling one right now. I wonder what it is. He doesn't seem high. I didn't smell any tobacco on him. I didn't catch him vaping out behind the church. That's where the deacons go. <laughs> no. Can I tell you something? I eat too much. 
and it displeases God because I'm not taking care of the body he gave me. Sometimes I'm lazy, and it displeases him because he deserves for me to give every second of my life to his service. (laughs) Well, at least you're not a murderer. John said, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're a murderer. Are you a thief? Yep. A liar? Yep. Now, I'm not saying that any of those things that we should just pass over, oh, well, we all have our struggles. No, they're all wicked and they're all sinful and they all displease God. But please don't lose the fact that Jesus loves every sinner. And you can't sin your way out of his love. But along with that, as much as Jesus loves sinners, we cannot forget the other truth. That Jesus, with the white hot intensity of all of God's holiness, hates sin. We see that in this narrative in John chapter 11. Three times as Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus, three times we see him express deep, profound grief and even anger. We see it in verse 33, verse 35, and verse 38. Why? Seems to me that, man, if I'm Jesus and I know what's about to happen, (laughs) yeah, y'all go ahead and cry it out. We're about to change things. (laughs) Where's the tomb? (laughs) It's about to get on, (laughs) y'all. You don't have any idea what's coming. (laughs) That's not what we see at all. We see a Jesus who is grieved and even angry because he sees all around him what sin has done to people that he loves. Lazarus' death came from sin. The wages of sin is death. The weeping is because of sin. The mourning is because of sin. Those Pharisees that are in the corner watching to see what they can get him on, that's because of sin. Sin is everywhere. And he hates it. God's people could stand to get a little more like him, loving sinners, but hating sin. Well, pornography is not that big a deal. Tell that to the thousands of young ladies that have been enslaved and trafficked because of it. Alcohol, it's not a big deal. How about the families that are broken because of it? Well, gossip. (laughs) How many lives have been ruined because people tend to believe gossip? It's all wicked. It's all vile. And God hates it all. And we we will not get anywhere as, as, as Christians and as a church if we don't start understanding just how sinful sin is. And yes, love the sinner, and I'm going to embrace anybody that walks in here. Somebody walks in here, and they're they're living a life of debauchery. I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to tell, listen, you can find help here. You can find hope here. But I'm doing you a disservice if I don't tell you that what you've embraced in your life is going to kill you now and for eternity. 
Jesus evaluated evil and proclaimed that he hates it. May God help us not to embrace that which so offends his son. What did you watch last night? What did you look at last night? What did you listen to this morning while you're getting ready? What kind of attitude have we displayed? I told you about it last week. I had a terrible attitude last week. God loves me, but he hated my attitude. Many times in the Bible, sin is referred to as a canker. You know what a canker is? It's cancer. I don't know of anybody in here that would not want to deal with cancer upon its first being noticed. Why? Because cancer grows. And left unchecked, it kills. Sin is worse. Cancer can send you to heaven. Sin will send you to hell. We look at the raising of Lazarus from Jesus' perspective. We learn some things. So what? We learn that just because he's silent doesn't mean he's inactive or indifferent. We, we learn that he is doing something and he does care. We learn that just because we have pain in our lives doesn't mean it's disciplinary and it shouldn't detach us. We are ever in the presence of the Lord. And we learn what Jesus thinks of evil. He hates the sin. But aren't you glad he loves the sinner? All right, so what's our so what? What do we take from this? Two things. Number one, if you're here today and you've never been saved, now's the time. I'm not asking you to join this church. I'm not asking you to get in the baptism, baptist, baptistry. I'm not asking you to become a Baptist. I'm not asking you to come shake my hand. I'm not asking you to do any of that. I'm asking you to realize you're a sinner and understand that if that sin is unchecked, if that sin is left not being dealt with, you'll die and go to hell. That's the Bible. That's God's word that says that. Not me, not this church, God's word. And I'm begging with you, I'm pleading you, pleading with you, please, please, please don't wait. We do not know. Those three young men at UVA, they got off that bus. They didn't know that somebody was waiting in the shadows to end their lives. And now they're in eternity. I hope in heaven, but they're in eternity. They're gone. I don't have far to go to get home. Anything could happen between here and home. Your heart's not guaranteed another beat. You're just trying to scare us. I sure am. Because if you're taking breaths in this life without the Lord Jesus Christ, you're living on borrowed time. And you could, it could be called on you at any moment. What causes me to not be afraid with every breath that I draw, with every beat of my heart? I'll tell you what, because I know if that's it, I know where I'm headed. And it's going to be okay. Do you know that? 
Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Now, if you have, you don't need to redo that once for all. But if you haven't, if you haven't, then I'm asking the Holy Spirit to make it abundantly clear to your heart right now. I am not saved, and I need to be saved right now. Christian, you're saved. You're on your way to heaven. Perhaps Jesus has spoken to you about something in this message, something about his silence, something about pain in your life, something about his view of evil, or maybe it's something else. I don't know. But whatever he's speaking to you about this morning, you dare not let it sit. Deal with it. There at your pew, here at the altar, but you obey him this morning and follow his leadership. I trust that you will.